Welcome to the Table Leadership Podcast, where everyone is invited to pull up a seat, and all leaders have a voice to contribute to the conversation. We're glad you could join us today. And now, your host, Sian Edgerton. Warm weather, so it's still rainy and no snow on the ground. My grass is still green. Okay, unusually warm though. What does that mean for Alaska? Well, it hit, it was like maybe the low 50s. Okay, so that is still decent. I just, I wonder if it's relative. Like when you say unusually warm, is that, you know, unbearable for the rest of us? But well, I live in, I live in the warmer part of Alaska. I mean, if there's okay. such a thing. <laughs> but we would normally have snow on the ground this time of year and it would be in the 20s to 30s and it's, it's wow. bumping up against 50. So it is a little unusual. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I hope that that sticks for you. Um, so for everyone that doesn't know you that's listening, um, take a second and just introduce yourself a little bit about who you are, what you do, um, the different roles that you play and hats that you wear. I know you do lots of really amazing stuff. And so just let our listeners know a little bit about, um, about you. Well, my name is Gwen Adams and I, uh, I live in Anchorage, Alaska. I've been in women's ministry, discipleship ministry, pastor on staff for years, um, I think 25 years now in ministry. The last several years since 2012, I've been leading, founded and leading an organization called Priceless, which is an organization that walks with victims of sex trafficking in the state of Alaska. And that's grown to encompass a whole lot of other things, but that's where it started. And so, yeah, kind of feel a little bit still, even though it's been since 2012, still feel a little bit of like fish out of water because I've spent my entire life in the church ministry and um, now I'm in the nonprofit world. Wow, that's awesome. Um, And we're going to talk more about that a little bit later, too, because I have some questions about that. Um, So as we're jumping in here, one of the first questions that I always ask everyone, um, and this, I think, even more than the intro, this is what really helps people get to know uh, the guests that we have on the show. So if we were sitting together at an actual live table right now, if we weren't doing this virtually and online, considering that it is the Table Leadership Podcast, um, and we were gathering a group of leaders for discussion and development, what would you be serving them? What is the one dish that is just kind of like your cup of tea? Or if you're not one that cooks, what is your absolute favorite dish? What would you be serving leaders at the table if we were actually gathered together right now? So if I didn't have the confines of finances, (laughs) I would absolutely be serving my spinach berry salad and Alaska king crab legs, Mm. without a doubt. And um, I'm, I'm one of those girls who on Valentine's Day, Mother's Day, whatnot, I don't want a bouquet of red roses. I want a bouquet of Alaska king crab legs. <laughs> My husband knows that, so that's what I get. And so, and of course, have you ever had Alaskan king crab legs outside of Alaska? I have not. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, are you sorely disappointed? Because I imagine there's got to be a difference in the quality and freshness when you're actually If they it. say Alaskan king crab legs, they are, they've been caught up here, though. Yeah, and so, so you think the, the quality kind of maintains through all of the travel and whatnot? Oh, yeah. I mean, you'd, you'd have to have them frozen, yeah. Okay. All right. So then I can trust the king crab you legs. Could, you could go to a restaurant and pay, uh, uh, you know, probably it would cost you a kidney, but you would be able to get them. 
<laughs> well, I'm sure it would be worth it. That's why we have two kids. Oh, that's great. So, um, all right, so let's jump into this. So that's what you bring food-wise, spinach berry salad and king crab, which sounds amazing, by the way, even though it is, what, 9, 10 o'clock in the morning? <laughs> that's okay. You can, you can eat crab all day. Um, so now when we talk about the leadership table, what is it that you feel like you bring to the leadership table? The, the table has come to be a very significant and important symbol in all that I do. And to me, the table is the ultimate symbol of God's love. There's a, a few interesting things about the table. Um, you really don't approach a meal without somebody serving a meal and somebody consuming a meal. So there's something very powerful about the imagery of the table. When I think about uh, my relationship with God, I spent so much time wanting to make dishes for him and, and put all these amazing things on the table for the father when really all he was saying is, I've already prepared the feast. Your job is to mm. pick up a fork and eat. And so um, probably the most significant thing I would bring to the leadership um, table would be the, the idea that your, your responsibility as a leader is to consume. Consume what the Father has authored, and that's your primary job. But there'll be places where you get to basically be a sous chef with the father and prepare amazing dishes for other people alongside of him. But the idea is we approach the table with desire and delight. That's good. Wow. And I love the the imagery. I love the parallel that you're drawing there. So when you talk about sous chef, what does that really mean for someone who's not familiar with that term? The idea of the sous chef is you're not the head chef, right? Your role is, is really what? He's got... The, the father has the idea of the meal already laid out in his mind. He knows what he wants to serve, whether it's to this individual wanting to serve grace or wanting to serve mercy or redemption. He has the meal planned out, but he just lets me be the one to work alongside him in the preparation and the serving of that. So I guess that would be the, the best picture I could come up with for that. Yeah, no, that's so good. I was just uh, recently actually reading again in First uh, Peter, talking about how God is patient, how he waited patiently while Noah built the ark. And so I went back and I was looking at, you know, the story of Noah and the ark. And that one always just hits me because it talks about how Noah was a man who walked in close fellowship with God. And then God gives him this assignment, but it was already all figured out and planned out. Here's exactly what I want you to do. Here's how I want you to do it. Divine strategy was already in place. Here's the dimensions. Here's how big you're going to build it. And now here, go be about your work. Go be about the father's business. So I love that. I love that mentality. What does that, when we realize that our role is really the sous chef and not the head chef, what, um, what freedom does that give? I mean, it's everything I, I spent, you know, there, it's not that I never tasted great food or sat at the table before, but there's always were seasons where I would turn my back to the table and work really, really hard to, yeah, please the father yeah. and to please the people I was working for and to look good, whatever, right? And so I always picture myself, you know, when I turn the back to the table, there I am on a rickety old stove again with like four pots on there and I'm just making up some sauces and stirring and whipping it up. And, and the Lord just in his grace, I think comes down and turns up the heat. And so I'm bouncing from pot to pot faster just to keep them from boiling over and turns the heat up again. And then there's gotta be a place where you step back and say, yeah, 
my plan doesn't really work. And now it's just boiling over. It's a big mess. And then um, remember to just turn. And really, um, at the heart of repentance is turning, right? Yeah. Just turn around. And there before me is always a feast. That's the Father's response to when I get so off track that way and, and slip back into that pleasing mode. He just asks me to turn around and just take a seat, pick up a fork, and I've got all kinds of wonderful things for you. That's so good. And so can I ask, what was it that kind of got you to that place? Was it personality, upbringing? You know, what is it that sort of made you feel like, oh, gosh, I've got to be the head chef. I've got to prepare this meal. And the the follow-up to that is, then what led you to the place of recognizing I'm the sous chef? I get to be the consumer of what the father has already done. Well, I think honestly, just the the pace and the the lifestyle of being a on staff and being on the executive team in a mega church um, fed the unhealthy side of me. Mm-hmm. And um, to add to that, also being a woman on that team of all all men, and in a place where the the written theology didn't match the practice theology around women. And so there was a sense that I had to work twice as hard as everybody around me and make sure that they didn't regret hiring a woman for the job I had. At that time, mm-hmm. I had a job called Pastor of Discipleship Development and Community. And so I just remember feeling like an enormous pressure that if I fail, I fail on behalf of all the women who follow me, right? Mm-hmm. Is there kind of, uh, there's a little bit of a test market, like, okay, can can women lead in this way? Let's let's try it with Gwen and see if it works, right? And um, so feeling the pressure of that. And I think, too, just feeling like the better better you do at your job in a mega church like that, the more work you create for yourself. So even something as simple as like, okay, man, this church has to feel smaller, People have to feel connected in a different way. So then what do you do? You develop a huge one-on-one discipleship program. But at the end of the day, it was never for me. Like I created a church for them. I was at a church for them. It was never my church. It was never a place that I felt at home, you know. So I think on the path or on that treadmill, um, it it just fed this – it fed a sickness in me, to be honest – of work harder, work harder, work harder, work harder, and then collapse. You know, if you can take a break and we can call that, you know, a day off or whatnot, you could even call it Sabbath. But what it really was, was a day to escape from everything. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it would start all over again. So that, that is, I think what drove me out of church ministry. And I said, there's so much noise in the background. (laughs) okay mark i'm recording a podcast so i'll i'll pause while you pour that or whatever (laughs) okay all right (laughs) um sorry about that that's okay um i don't even know where i was just talking about just i you know being really caught up in having to keep up and stay on that gerbil wheel make sure that i did everything that was required of me plus 10, just to make sure that I could keep up with everybody. And in fact, sometimes even uh, I would get uh, accolades or, you know, even compliments about how hard I worked or um, praise for that or what, you know, I'll tell you what, Gwen can take it. 
kind of an attitude. And so I feel like in that place, I really learned to, um, I really learned to work hard and sacrifice myself in a sense. Mm. But what I really was giving up was what I was called to do. I was giving up my true identity. I was giving up my voice. And I know it's kind of crazy and it might sound extreme, but I work now in the world of sex trafficking and and walking with victims, but there's a part of their story that so parallels my own story because Mm -hmm. um, I was also being sold to the highest bidder. You know, my gifts were what was was being used, my talents and the things that I brought to a church community, but I was unseen. Yeah. And that is so powerful. And and I can't tell you how many leaders I've talked to who share that. Two things that you talked about that really stood out to me is being the only one, the fact that you were the only woman and the pressure from that, because like you said, you in essence are representing all of the other women and how true that is for so many leaders, whether they're the only woman on staff or the only person of color on staff or the only person of a different socioeconomic status or sexual orientation, whatever it may be, when you are the only one that comes with a massive amount of pressure. And then the other thing that you talked about too, this idea, and and I know that it does sound extreme, but, but I'm glad you brought it up because obviously, you know, I would never, ever want to um, downplay the seriousness of human trafficking and the experience that these women have had. But on a different level, there are so many of us who we are being trafficked and, and some of us who are prostituting our gifts on the altar of ministry for the sake of things that God never called us to. Mm-hmm. And so I want, I want to hear your reflections on those things. When you talk about being the only one. Uh, If we have someone listening who is the only person like them on a team or on a staff, whether it's in the church or not, talk about the pressure of that so that what does it mean for that person and how can we bring awareness to those who lead on the team and say, oh, yeah, there's tons of people that look like me. How can we help everyone understand what it means to be the only one? What is the burden? Well, I think... I think a couple of thoughts come to mind. And the first one is um, the pressure that we put on ourselves in that spot, I think is, is not legitimate in some ways, because I think um, we start growing it into something bigger than it is. I mean, the truth of the matter is that um, I felt pressure for all women because I was the, the only one in that spot. There were a couple of others that did come on for shorter stints that were in that with me. And even, even though at one point there were, there was another woman who was also on that team, we were not allowed to sit together because it looked like a feminine alliance. I don't know what that means, but that's what was said. So, um, so even, even when there was another one, we were, we were kind of isolated but I think that bearing the responsibility for all women was something that was not a good, good place for my head to go. At at the end of the day, I bear responsibility for me, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, I'm not, uh, whether I fail or or succeed in, in that position at that church and whether they never have another woman on staff is totally not mine to bear. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think that added some sickness to me um, bearing like, wow, 
I'm paving the way for all others, which is yeah. just kind of, I think, added to the crazy. The other thing I can say about it is, I mean, I finally just had to come to the point where um, I quit apologizing for being a woman in that place. Yeah. And I knew that I was being used in some senses because they there was a lot of talk about, you know, wow, look how progressive we are. We we have a woman on this team, you know, where if there was any any question anywhere in the church, like quite often there would be in our newcomers class questions about the theology around women or whatnot. They would always point to me, well, see, we have this woman. So it was important to them to have a woman on staff. This And I, my partner was uh, an African-American man. Uh, he was doing the men's ministry while I was doing women's ministry. And both of us, we'd had many discussions about, you know, I'm like the token woman, he's the token black person. And how that felt sometimes, you know, that I'll know we're past this when they quit introducing me as the woman on staff. Mm -hmm. Like when they quit, when they quit patting themselves on the back for having me there, when they quit patting themselves on the back for having Greg there, like when they get past them looking at us with that, maybe I'll get past looking at myself that way too, you know? Um, so there was a, a place where I just had to say at, at the end of the day, this is what I feel called to do. And, and my skin is white and I'm a woman and I'm the age that I am, whatever all the, the things are, if God wanted someone different, he would have called someone different. So this is how I come packaged and this is where I'm at. And to just lean fully into that. And so, yeah, they, there was definitely um, a lot of pressure put on externally in, in that, but the rest of the pressure is stuff I put on myself. Yeah. So I think the best advice I would give to somebody who's leading in that lonely place where they're the only one is find other places where you're not the only one. I mean, I definitely got in, I think one of the groups I was in was with with you, a huddle that we were in, but found places where I was um, seen and known with other amazing women leaders. And I couldn't find that in Alaska. So I found that outside of Alaska in video groups. So yeah. find that place. But then when you're there, be fully you, be there and unapologetic about any of the differences. Don't keep bringing them up, pointing them out. I think sometimes we end up making a bigger thing of it than it's supposed to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's really good. And so I wonder if some of that, that burden and that pressure that is self-imposed that we put on ourselves, does that play into at all some of the tendencies that we can have to um, allow ourselves and our gifts to be trafficked. Talk to me about some of the parallels doing the work that you do now that you've seen between the life that you were living and the experience of some of these women and what brought you to freedom. I think what, what, what brought me to freedom out of feeling used for my gifts was finally having some boundaries around what I would say yes to and what I would say no to. Mm -hmm. And um, the other woman that was on staff with me ended up losing her job over the same kind of boundaries. So I'm not saying this is easy or, you know, I ended up, ended up quitting um, and taking priceless the organization I now lead instead of, so I, I just went from this place to this place and the church um, very happily sent me. Um, there was not um I mean, I wasn't fired from my job, but I knew that my time had come to an end there because mm -hmm. uh, the boundaries I put in place were continually 
being pushed or violated. And so some of those things that finally just had to say, okay, this is where the line is drawn. I will take a day off every week that I'm not being pulled in, in any other directions. And I'm going to work 40 hours a week and that's it. Yeah. And if you need somebody, even one of my, the gal that I was on staff with, what was actually said to her was, I need a younger man in this role because I need somebody who's not married who I can push hard to, to give 70 hours a week. Okay, go find him. Of course, it didn't work out well. But, mm-hmm. you know, finally just saying this is, this is who I am. This is what I bring to the table. And I'm not bringing all these other things. It took me saying in staff meetings, I know this is going to sound crazy, or those pastoral team meetings where it was all the other guys, like it took me saying, I no, I'm, I'm not taking notes. I'm not going to go bring the coffee in. Like all the stuff that comes attached with being a woman. No, like, oh, well, you know what? We, well, we need to do this meeting. When would you be in charge of food? No, no, I won't. So having to, to, to kind of break myself out of the mold, what I know, I know what I bring. And that's part of what I, what I think, um, was the growth place for me is being sure of what I brought. Like I know who I am. I know what I bring and I know what I, I know where I'm limited and I know where I need help. And so having to be bold about those things and not let those boundaries get crossed anymore. And I even had to have a talk with them. It's like, you know, it feels really terrible to me as a woman when you introduce me as the one woman on the, on the staff and then you pat yourself on the back for it. So from now on, can you just use my name when you introduce me like you do with everybody else? So I had to kind of, you know, not in a resentful way, but in a loving way, say, look, you're not women, so you don't know how this feels, or you're not, you know, whatever. I mean, so you don't know how this feels, but educate them along the way of how it felt. Yeah. And it didn't, uh, it, it, you know, it went fine for me doing that. Um, mm-hmm. It didn't change the culture, but at least it made the my last few uh, years there more tolerable. Yeah. Um, um, ultimately, the theology was rewritten to reflect how they actually treated women, yeah. um, where there was, I mean, no opportunities to teach there anymore if a man was present, those sort of things. So I ended up having to, to pull back and make a decision. Like, it was no problem to see me lead in a nonprofit outside of the church, but within the confines of the church. The gifts that I have, I, I could call them, in that place, masculine gifts. Yeah. And so teaching from the stage wasn't going to happen anymore, even though that, that is something I had done. Mm-hmm. Um, co-teaching in a, a, a Bible study was a maybe, but make sure that um, it's not like mine isn't the, the main teaching role. And, um, you know, some different things were said over, over the course of time that made me realize, so I'm in a place where my gifts aren't going to be able to be used. I'm in a place where, um, my voice is being slowly silenced mm-hmm. um, over time in a very gentle way, honestly, but it was being silenced. So I had to, had to make the decision that this is probably not a place where I can be who I'm really called to be. And so how, what are some of the methods of discernment that you use? Because I hear what you're saying and I love the boundaries that you set. I mean, even, you know, for someone who's, a little non-confrontational like me to think about saying, no, I won't take notes. No, I won't bring the food. You know, that makes me, whoa, it makes me tense up a little bit. So just the boldness that you had to be able to rewrite that and, and break that mold a little bit, I think is amazing. 
What about for the person who feels like, you know what, I'm supposed to be here because I'm helping to change the culture. Now, granted, usually that's in a place that desires culture change, and it sounds like you weren't. But what are some of the different steps of discernment that you can take to decide, you know what, this is a place where I will not be valued, my voice is being silenced, and it's not my job to fight and change this. I don't bear the burden of responsibility for um, shifting their beliefs or shifting the culture of this place, and it's time for me to go. Or, you know what, I'm actually being asked to be here and change the culture. How do you, how do you discern that? Now, this is just my story, and I'm not saying this will be for anybody else because I know that's a really, like, a tender place to be where you finally decide that this is not a place where my gifts can be used or expressed. But for me, I I was, uh, went to a counselor and was talking through some of the deep wounding I felt in that place, and honestly, I loved, loved, loved what I did. I was in my dream job, and in Alaska here, there's not a lot of huge churches where someone with a theology degree is going to make some money And you're, as a woman. I mean, uh, there's not even a lot of churches that are real open to, to women teaching up here. Mm-hmm. So um, I knew that if I walked away from that job, I wouldn't be in a, a place where I would be getting paid to do what I love to do anymore. But I loved this church. I loved the people. I felt um, like the 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 men on staff even uh, that I was laboring next to were brothers to me and um, didn't want this theological difference to end up destroying what felt like family to me, like leaving that place honestly felt like a bitter divorce. Like it was, Mm. it tore at my heart worse than I could say. So I ended up going to a counselor just to process um, all of that and what exiting looked like and all of that. And he said to me, you know, I was telling him some of the stuff that had gone on, which he called it abuse. And I never termed it that way. I guess I was um, a lot more willing to put up with a lot of stuff and just kind of say, oh, that's just the way they are. That's, you know, they do that to everyone. I kind of made excuses for some of the stuff that would have been abuse. When I knew it, it um, well, let me give you an example of that. Like I was told uh, at one point that I need to be really careful to speak in a lower register because it's hard for men to listen to women who screech. Um, and you can tell right now on this call that I actually have a pretty low register in my voice. Yeah. Um, so I, I was told be be really careful not to be so bold in meetings and, and give your opinion so freely because oh. you you come across sometimes like a bootstrapping mama. And I don't know what that is, but I didn't want to be a bootstrapping mama. So I thought I'm not going to wear boots with straps anymore. I'm not going to stomp around. I don't know. But it was it was the subtle little things that were just like, you know, back off. Like, at the end of the day, your opinion matters, but it's it's being brought in the form of a woman. And so it matters a little like and and it was very subtle. Like, I, I can't really even put a finger on it and say, oh, well, now, now that's abuse. Yeah. I, it was just a, a string of minimization, I guess I would say. And so I uh, told, uh, told the counselor that I didn't feel released and felt like um, God wanted to change the culture through me there. And so he reached across the table and said, okay, can you go ahead and hand me your God card? And then you come back to counseling next time when you can tell me the truth about why you stayed. And 
it was in the context of sitting with one of the, it was, she was the first survivor of trafficking that we had had into the program. And um, I was sitting with her talking and her story is the worst story of abuse I'd ever heard. And she came out of that into a fake adoption, fake, a fake foster home first before adoption. Um, but they posed all the paperwork was fake, all of that stuff. And they were actual traffickers and they trafficked her for 13 years. And she lived on a mat behind her couch. And um, it was always so curious to me. She had her own car. She was taking classes at the college. Um, she had a little part-time job. And yet she stayed in this place of horrific abuse where there were routine beatings. And of course, to be in a bed, she had to be doing whatever. And so I asked her, I go, what, why didn't you just like get in your car and leave? Like, why did you stay? And she said, because there was such a huge payoff for it. Mm -hmm. I, it was the first time I ever had family. I, um, it was the first time I ever actually got to uh, express or use my gifts and my love for cooking. And they bought me all kinds of things, you know, to do wine making or whatever. I mean, they poured into her hobbies. And so she loved, loved that. And she, she did all the domestic work for the house as well, uh, which is part of, part of her love is to do all the cooking. So she felt like there was a place where she was wanted and loved and used and uh, uh, for all the right reasons. And um, so it seemed like a pretty good payoff to take the abuse to have that because she never had any of that in her childhood. And I just felt like the Lord just tapped me on the shoulder and said, that's you too, Gwen. Oh. I started to think about it. And I went back to the counselor and said, I, I stayed because I was getting a, a good paycheck. I was getting to use my gifts. Every area of ministry that I was touching was exploding with growth. There was a lot of accolades in that. There was a lot of affirmation in that. Uh, I got to I got to preach and teach, and which I love to do, which just fills my heart. So I stayed not because I wanted to change a culture. I stayed because I was afraid that God would provide for me in any yeah. other place. So I stayed. I stayed because I didn't trust him. Wow. Thank you for being willing to share that piece of your story so vulnerably. That's, that's powerful. Do you, um, do you feel like this experience has allowed you to um, be able to do the work that you do now from a deeper place? because you can see the parallels and, and oh yeah I mean and I'm one of the things I'm most proud of right now at this place in my life you know because I lead an organization mm -hmm. is I lead differently I mm -hmm. am absolutely going to refuse to use people for the gifts and the talents that they bring to the team so our staff meetings look very different I start staff meeting by asking how what sabbath rest looked like for everybody yeah. And if that was something that was violated or not adhered to, um, go home. Mm -hmm. Like, just go home. Um, so, you know, in, in our staff team time, I want to know what's going on in the heart. And because I know if you're healthy and you're seen and known and cared for uh, and get to use your voice and your gifts in your way, that's going to mean a healthy organization for me. Um, I could, I've never had an issue with having people um, put in too few hours or skip out on work or whatnot. I've had a lot of issues with 
um, people working too hard, staying too late, not honoring their families because the work is is so demanding. So um, I just lead differently because of it and watching a really healthy organization flourish where we've even won a, a national award and all kinds of national attention on what are you doing? Why is the recidivism rate with sex trafficking survivors so low in your organization? Like, how is this possible? And honestly, it's because I I lead differently. I, I th- and the, the team is the team sees themselves differently. They get to bring what's theirs to bring and nothing more. I don't even let people volunteer in my organization. If you're on staff with me and you have extra volunteer hours to give, you don't get to give them in price. Let's go give them in chosen or somewhere else. But like it's, it's 40 hours. Yeah. And yeah. I don't want the, the lines crossed. And, and I want like, if someone comes and says that, man, I really want to grow in this area of teaching, I will fight hard to provide those venues and places for that to happen. I, I want, I want the team to feel like um, they're the gem, not their gifts. They're the gem. Oh, that's so good. And that's so countercultural, not even just in the church world, but just our Western culture in general. That is not how most organizations operate. That is not how we lead. And so to hear the and to hear the fruit of that, that yes, it is possible to value your team and to value your people and to champion them, not just their gifts, and to actually work a 40-hour work week and still be successful when we're honoring ourselves and honoring our guests and honoring Sabbath, that there is actually a return on the investment that we're making. I mean, the hard part of that is I I get to be the bad guy. I get to do things like close our emergency shelter Mm -hmm. because the gal that's staying in there is having a really tough time with something. Yeah. It's like, no, she doesn't need another woman coming into the shelter in crisis. Like I'm going to close the shelter for a couple of weeks and give her some space. And I know that, you know, those are sometimes super unpopular decisions, but my team, I put all the eggs in that basket of healthy team. Yeah. That, that's what I care for. And that our team at large puts all the eggs in the basket of healthy mentors. Mm-hmm. Like down here on the list is sex trafficking survivors. And, and anytime we let the cry of this need start creeping up to where that's the focus, everything falls apart. It yeah. just does. That's human nature. So, so um, I, I, I spend time, I spent time doing fun things with my team. We, we, we play together. We, we pray together. We, I, my first and primary most important huddle that I lead is just my team where they have a chance to check in every week and talk about real life stuff. I do care about, I, I mean, I care deeply about um, ridding Alaska of the, the crime of sex trafficking and we're doing amazing work in that area. But that's going to go at the pace of my team, period. Yeah. So if FBI calls and says this actually is a true story, got a girl in the car, she's got cigarette burns all up and down her arms. They've been using her as a human ashtray. I mean, horrible story. Can she please come to the house? And I'm not prepared. I will say if I don't have a a mentor team waiting and health and we're ready for it, I will say, no, I'm so sorry. She cannot come. And um, that's one of the, I guess uh, the high prices of leadership, but if anyone knows what it feels like to have to sacrifice and 
um, to the point of really harming yourself. It's me. I'm not going to do that to my team. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, because the thing that I'm thinking about and kind of hearing behind the lines of your talking, as you move out of this place of allowing yourself and your gifts to be trafficked, you know, whatever the payoff may have been and coming into this place of health and healing, which is a process, I know. On the other end of that comes not only you leading from a completely different way and valuing your team and really pouring it into them, um, but I have to think about what does it look like now to be able to say, you know what? this is what me and my gifts are worth. And I'm thinking about um, the leaders that I've talked to, especially women and usually leaders of color, especially women of color, um, who are leading in a place where they're not being fairly compensated for the work that they're doing and the gifts that they bring, or the really uncomfortable place for many of us where we have to actually um, – evaluate that, whether we're speakers or coaches or whatever it may be, having to put a price on it and say, you know what, this is what I'm worth. This is what I'm valued at. This is what it costs. And that can be so hard. It can be so hard to get uh, fair compensation. It can be so hard to say, yes, if you want me to come be part of your event as a speaker or a coach or, you know, whatever it may be for those of us who are leading in spaces where we do have to set our own value to actually ask for what we're worth and to be okay doing that. It's such an uncomfortable place. What have you learned? How do we do that? Well, just talk to me about that whole world. Cause this is, this is a conversation that I have repeatedly with leaders over and over and over again, how hard and uncomfortable it is to have to set and acknowledge and ask for your value. Um, a, a couple of, of things on that. I think the first thing is believe the best about your leaders. Believe the best that, that they, they're probably leading from a place of ignorance around this issue more than they've got it out for you. And sometimes it's just been that, that way for so long that they've never bothered even looking at the pay scale and asking the right questions or any of that. So I wouldn't go in in an accusatory way. I would go in honestly believing until you learn otherwise. They go in honestly believing that they don't know. They don't know your need. They don't know what the median pay scale for someone in your position is. So when you go in, go in with that knowledge. What is the median pay scale for someone who does the same job that you do? Uh, male, female, black, white, whatever. Like, what is that job worth? And you can find that for the church, uh, roles in the church, roles across everywhere. And so do your homework and know what, you, know, what, know what is the community around you values for that position. And um, then go in with that and say, hey, I would like a raise. And here's why the median position for this, I'm willing to even take a little less than what's median if, if someplace is struggling financially, but this is what I need. I think that's the first place to start is just going in and, and asking with a, mm -hmm. with, without any accusation, without any, um, I wouldn't go in and, and point out all the ways they're doing it wrong and all that kind of stuff. I would just honestly believe they might not know. Yeah. And so go in and ask. If that doesn't work, then 
even though the culture around you values that position at this amount of money, this church doesn't. And you have to wrestle with that. And the church then or the, or the organization that you're in doesn't deserve to have you there. That's just fact. I mean, I can't really change that. Um, you may decide that in this season, the place is struggling or we're just building something from scratch and everybody on the team is taking a 50% pay cut or something like that. So it's worth it for me um, to, to stick it out because we're building something together. That's entirely different. But I think for me that the big lesson was, um, do I trust that God has something for me? And do I trust that he's going to put me in a place that honors honors the gifts that he's given me? Mm-hmm. And uh, I personally don't ask for anything other than an honorarium when I speak. Um, I feel really passionate about the message that I carry right now. I feel really impact- passionate about the engaged training that we do. And I don't want to cut off churches from having that because they can't afford it. So I'm, I'm pretty bold about the fact that not every church can afford what I bring, and, but there's churches that can afford quite a bit more. So please pay accordingly. And if your church is in a position that can pay more, know that you're probably covering the cost for a church that can't. Yeah. So I've gone, I've gone halfway across Alaska and spoken to women's groups before for, and, and got uh, paid with a pair of homemade earrings. And totally worth it to me because I, I wanted to bring this message to that group of women. Yeah. So I get to choose to do that or not do that. But I've also gone to other speaking engagements where I promise you they paid me way more than I should have been paid. <laughs> I was like, that was right. super generous, but it was with the heart too. Um, yeah. I mean, I just, I just, I feel like that kind of comes out in the wash. So the speaking thing's a little different for me. Now I would say if it's a regular, um, a, a regular, if, if that is the career that you're building is a speaking thing, um, yeah, then you want to go where the, where people can pay what you're what you're worth. Mm, and you can say yes or no to the other ones, but. Um, also, the one, one thing I would caution is there's something to be said for building a name for yourself in, in that world. And so um, as you're in that process, you really may be worth a lot more, but no one's going to pay that because they're still taking a risk on you. Yeah. So while people are in that place of taking a risk on having you come because they don't really know what you bring, mm-hmm. um, you're going to have to, you're going to have to. Uh, wade through that differently. I mean, it just, it just takes a while for what you bring to matter. It does. And I love to, what I feel like you're really speaking to is how differently things work in God's economy, talking about the idea of trusting him and how some places can pay more and some they give what they can, but really in God's economy, the way that he brings the return on our investment is, you know, always in my experience, Mm -hmm. far beyond what we actually invested. When we're investing into his kingdom, the return on that is is always huge. In God's economy, it just works different than the world does. It does. It does. I think it I think the important point is that you you're you're willing to be bold and ask when you feel like the Father's led you to ask. Yeah. And you're willing to go out and just do something because God wants you to do it when those mm-hmm. things arise too. Yeah. So I I think, you know, I mean I get, I probably, I don't know, anywhere between 30 and 50 speaking engagements a year, something like that. Uh, the vast majority of those are for free because they're awareness around um, sex trafficking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and 
and uh, Priceless gets money for that. So I raise money on behalf of Priceless all the time. And then several of those, of course, are, are just me speaking at women's retreats or conferences or or the engaged training as well. Um, so I, I get paid a really good salary for my job. And so all the engaged training, I don't take an additional cut for that. Mm-hmm. But the women's things that I do. So I, I mean, I have other sources of income around that. But there's places where I have said I, I wouldn't come and do a, a three-day women's retreat for less than this amount because it's not a place I feel called to. It's not um, part of my job with Priceless. It's right. it's completely outside of that. And I'll just give a price. And, you know, if it's somewhere I really don't want to go, it'll be a little bit of a higher price to compensate because, hey, yeah. if I'm going to go clear to wherever, at least I want to do is be able to buy a new outfit. <laughs> but So, I mean, I it's not a hard set rule for me. I just really mm-hmm. have to just lay the finances out for the Lord and I think the thing is, is not putting yourself in a place where you're being regularly used. And I say regularly because mm-hmm. there's no way around. I mean, if you, if you want to start speaking and you feel passion around that, there's no way to get to a pay scale that you deserve without a lot of teaching and speaking. And there's yeah. no way to get those, those bookings without a willingness to go anywhere and talk to anybody. Right. So, Yeah. I get a little leery sometimes I hear women say, you know, I want to be paid what I'm worth. And I'm like, yes, but, but, but you'll get there. Right. And don't, don't, don't jump on that too soon because what you'll do is cut off your opportunity. Mm-hmm. People mm-hmm. need to hear you. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point of wisdom too. There's a huge balance there in really discerning and determining, okay, what situation am I in and what's the reality of that? So that's good. Um, so I want to, as we're wrapping up, I really want to bring it full circle because I love, um, what you started off with just talking about the idea of the table in general and consuming what God has already brought. And so what I'd like to do is I want to give a couple different, um, roles. I think people that are listening might be coming from a few different perspectives and I just want to ask what would be your word or, you know, few words of wisdom to those people. So, for example, for someone who um, has been playing the role of head chef and is realizing, wow, my role is actually that of sous chef, what is one piece of wisdom or advice um, or encouragement that you might give to that person? I think for somebody who is working really hard to prepare amazing dishes for the father, working on their own stove, wanting to put their own dishes on the table. I I think um, the word I want to say is turn around. Sometimes we spend a lot of time putting quarters in a broken Coke machine, expecting Coke to come out. And so if there's a, if there's a place of struggle in your, in your life where it feels like nothing seems to work out, I'm just bumping up against the same thing over and over again. Sometimes you got to realize that the whole system you're in is broken and you're continually putting quarters in a broke machine, no Coke coming out of there. And it's time to turn around like, and repent, like turn like uh, enough's enough. So if it feels like it's just, man, I'm just bumping up against the same thing over and over again, that it's time to step back and take an evaluation. Like what, what am I pouring my effort into why am I pouring effort in at this degree 
because really there's something about the work of the Lord that carries with it a leisureliness that can't be duplicated anywhere else. Like the world I'm in is so dark, so hard, and it, it, it requires an enormous amount of downtime to recover. It sometimes recovers, it sometimes requires counseling for secondhand trauma, all of this stuff, right? But if you walked by my office, you would see that there was laughter in there. There's a there's a leisureliness to the work that we do. I think that's where um, we're called uh, as followers of Christ is to live in that space with total trust where he's got the hard stuff. And if everything feels really hard, you may be in the wrong spot and turn around. And I'll tell you, when I turned around and the first dish that I ate off the table, the first dish that the father handed to me was rest. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea how badly I needed it. Renewal and rest. And then, of course, I was eating a lot of grace, too, off the table. Yeah. But just to, to realize that I've been really pouring so much effort into a place that doesn't want me, doesn't want my gifts, uh, isn't valuing me. Uh, and those are really hard things to admit because I'm pretty talented and I felt like I, I could pull it off in my own strength. But it wasn't what God had for me. Yeah. So I guess that's the first thing is, is if it feels broken, it probably is broken. Yeah. And there's no heroism in continuing to put more quarters in a broken Coke machine. Like that's not a heroic act. That's stupidity. And so there's the, there's a place when we have to stop and say, this is broken and it's not working. And it's going to kill me to admit that, but this is broken. That's good. Okay. And so then what word of wisdom or encouragement would you give to the person who's seated at the table, uh, maybe seated at the table consuming, but feels like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm allowed in the kitchen. I think if you're not, if you're feeling like you're not allowed to join the father in preparing the meal, I you know, the, there's that dance throughout all of the Old Testament. There's so much in there about the table and food and feasting and all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the love of God is very much wrapped up into all of this imagery about the lover and the beloved or the, the, the feast. Um, and so recognizing that the father that within his chesed love is the preparer of the feast, right? And I respond not with Hesed love. I don't respond by being the preparer of the feast. I respond with Ahab love. It's spelled A-H-A-B, which is desire and delight. So when, it, when, the, when the word talks about love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself, that word there is Ahab, which is connotations of appetite mm-hmm. and desire and delight. So I love God by eating what he put out for me, right? So, and as I love God that way, there's a place where the natural shift comes where God is the one who calls us to the other side. He says, I want, I want you to prepare the food with me. And I want you now to bring the same chesed love as the preparer of the feast to the dying world around you. And then the language switches one more time in scripture and God starts saying he loves us with Ahab love. So it's in that place when we are, working alongside him and, and preparing the meal with him that he has desire and delight for us mm-hmm. or in us. It's a, it's one of the most beautiful dances in all of scripture is the interplay between the word Hesed and Ahab throughout scripture. 
And I honestly think you'll know when it's time to go and prepare the meal for somebody else alongside the father because you've tasted it and you can't shut up about it. Yeah. We we can't offer a dying world grace till we've received grace. We can't offer a dying world mm-hmm. comfort till we've consumed comfort. We can't offer any of those things until we're full. Mm-hmm. And so I think we we stay at the table till the Lord says, "Come with me." Good, that's good. Okay, and so then finally, what encouragement or invitation or word of grace would you give to the person who says? I don't even know that I have a seat at the table. I didn't realize that I could pull up the seat and sit down with the father. What would you say to the person that's hesitant, thinks that they're not even worthy to be there? So uh, we all have a seat at the table. Every one of us has been given that spot. And there's a lot of reasons we, we don't sit at the table one because we ran through mcdonald's on the way there Mm. and we filled ourselves up with something else Uh, one is we don't believe that the food on the table is actually for us or that it's good or we believe that if i consume the food on the table then i'm going to have to go do a whole bunch of stuff for god which i'm not sure i want to do so there's a lot of so i would say the first thing is to evaluate why is it you're leaving your chair empty it's your chair it's your fork and you refuse to get up there so I would, I would stop to think of what, why is it that, I, that I'm afraid to be in a place where I'm consuming? And honestly, a lot of it is just not understanding what the Father wants. Like, we think, this is how we treat God. As a parent, if I bought my child a bike for Christmas, and my kid opened up that bike and just, like, squealed with excitement, but then said, oh, Okay, starting today, I'm going to pay you back every penny you spent on this bike. I'm going to make sure that I do all my chores and I want to be worthy of riding the bike. Like, how icky for a parent, right? But we do that to God. Like, all I want as a parent is I want to see my kid, like, just thrilled riding around the cul-de-sac on their bike, right? That's what I desire as a parent. So we've been given all the gifts, all the stuff. It's already ours. And sometimes we just get weird about feeling about receiving the gift. Mm-hmm. So my advice to somebody is like, it's time to just pick up a fork. And what glorifies God is you indulging in the feast. Yeah. Like that's what that's what brings glory to God. Not running this and running that and speaking here and doing this. All that stuff is is awesome. I mean, it, it may be necessary. It's not the thing that mm-hmm. God delights in himself. In other words, God finds glory is glorified when we consume the feast. Like he gets off on himself as, as the preparer of the banquet that we so indulge in. Like that's how he finds glory. He doesn't find glory. He's not glorified when we sacrifice for him. Now that's, I know that's a mind blowing concept. He's glorified when we, delight in him sacrifice is just something that naturally happens along with obedience and all the rest of it when our delight when we become so consumed with what the father offers our response our response to the feast is sacrifice and obedience and all the other stuff Mm -hmm. Um, that that's just a response but the first step is consume yeah 
You know, I can only imagine that there are so many people listening to this that just had their entire construct of God flipped on its head, which is great. It's fantastic. I love what you just said. There was so much there still to, to process and to just meditate on and, and unpack with the Lord. It's so good. So, so good. Well, Gwen, thank you just for taking the time to be here and for sharing your heart so openly and sharing your story so vulnerably. There was so much truth and wisdom and goodness in what you gave us today. And I know, I know I'm, I've got my little list of notes right here and I know I'm going to be chewing on it for a while. Um, but I just want to say thank you on behalf of everyone listening. Thank you so much. Thank you, Sion. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to the Table Leadership Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to the resources that were discussed at the table today and to connect with today's guest. Remember to subscribe to the Table Podcast and follow along on social media at the Table Leadership. Visit thetableleadership.com to learn more about current courses and coaching opportunities. And finally, you can connect with me, your host, at cionedgerton.com or on social media at cionedgerton. I look forward to the next time that you pull up a seat at the table.